Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. Every week on this show, we talk to interesting people from the world of arts and entertainment. And I don't want that to just mean the biggest stars. I also want it to mean folks who you maybe haven't heard of or maybe on the cusp. And for me, that really describes this week's guests. This week's guests are Laura Zack and Kate Fisher. Uh, Laura is the co-creator and producer of an online show called Her Story. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. And Kate Fisher is, is its producer as well. Hi, thank you. And we're going to be talking about the show but also kind of the independent television slash web series slash YouTube movement and why that's so exciting and so many good things are going on there right now. And I kind of wanted to start with if you, looking back now, if you could go back and like time travel and tell the versions of yourselves who had not yet started to work on her story, like something that you really wish you had known before you started to make this this web series. I guess for me, it would be to embrace how big it was getting quicker. Right. <laughs> uh, we kind of, you know, we started off super small, you know, very small budget, very, you know, small cast and crew. Uh, and then everything kind of got elevated once Sydney Freeland, our director, came on board. And there were moments, you know, in the weeks following that where we still were trying to make things work, you know, w- within the kind of framework that we had originally planned. And I feel like, you know, there would have been a lot less stress if at that moment that Sydney came on board, it was just like, okay, we're quadrupling the budget and just going for it. Right. But yeah, I mean, even so, even with that, you know, we we kind of really went with the flow and it ended up really, really well. But I think it could have been a little stressful in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I I almost feel like it was helpful to have not known in a lot of ways that it was going to surpass our expectations just in that it allowed for, I mean, I guess as, as Kate was speaking to logistically, it, it could have made things easier earlier on. But I think in terms of going with the flow of every new piece that happened was a delightful surprise. You know, like we didn't really have particular expectations. So every step of the way, you know, with the new people coming on, it was just kind of expanding our hopes and belief for what it could be in a way that was always exceeding what we expected rather than falling short of it, which, you know, of course, accumulated with the Emmy nomination, which none of us, you know, had even known to think was possible when we were first setting out. Um, That was something that that they opened up the category to include submissions from YouTube this year. So it just was a matter of timing as well and good timing for us. Yeah, and we were actually pretty lucky in that we met the criteria, which was the minimum of six episodes, you know, with a a certain time limit. So, you know, we even when we were cutting it and we were releasing it, we didn't know that what we were doing would fall within that criteria of a category that didn't exist yet. Like, what was the point when you realized we could submit this for the Emmys? Because it seems like they probably have paperwork of some sort that you have to fill out. It's a crazy process that involves a lot of, um, typically a lot of PR and a lot of money. Um, We did it without a lot of either of that. Um, I mean, the process is basically you submit yourself for eligibility to be nominated, and that costs money. And that obviously you have to do. But after that, it's just about getting the word out. And and most companies and platforms and networks and studios have a lot of money budgeted, you know, to getting their shows nominated, which includes sending out screeners and putting their, you know, shows up on this Emmy portal, all of which costs thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and billboards around LA. Billboards, posters, all of it. Uh, we didn't have that opportunity, or we didn't have that have the money to do that. So we had to kind of basically guerrilla style get people to go to our YouTube page to watch it, and then go back to the Emmy page to vote for it. Uh, so you know, when we did it, we we were a long shot even to get nominated because we were up against you know hundreds of of other shows that were trying to get it out there that had a lot bigger budgets and more reach and more celebrities and all that stuff. So the fact that we were able to get the nomination is actually an extremely, you know, big accomplishment for yeah. a show like us, given mm-hmm. that. And and it was also a testament to how much the members of our community who had resources to offer us were wanting to help us and support us. And the grassroots effort of it becoming nominated had a lot to do with um, individuals coming on. We had one friend who really loved the show because it was, it was in the spring, I think, when mm-hmm. we found out it was eligible. And so we pushed to our version of the campaign was really the early summer. And then we found out in June, July that we were nominated. And in that time, so obviously the show had been out for several months at this point and had a fan base and people who 
in our immediate community and friends with wanting to support it. So there was one woman who came on, Robin Romer, who's this incredible photographer, who said, I want to do your, for your consideration, portraits and photos for free. And then mm-hmm. this other incredible woman, Lorraine Rochelle, who is the CEO of a company that basically their main gig is they disseminate online content for like uh, mostly advertisements for major corporations. So usually they'll be responsible for the YouTube ads you see that pop up before the videos. So basically she believed in the show so much that she said, make a little video and our company will do this for you at cost. So we just had a lot of people coming together and wanting to um, help us how they could and, and, you know, things that would have normally cost a lot of money Mm -hmm. being offered for free. Yeah, take me through your Emmy night. Like, what was the craziest encounter you had or the the best thing that happened to you that you were like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm actually sitting here and doing this? (laughs) Well, I mean, there were a lot of things. I mean, first of all, leading up to the Emmys, once your show is recognized, you have a small amount of tickets for free. But then the producer has the opportunity to purchase, in addition, as many tickets for cast and crew. But, of course, those are fairly expensive. So we sent out an email to our entire cast and crew explaining, you know, that everyone had the opportunity if they were able to pay, but no pressure, of course. And we were really expecting maybe two or three people to splurge. Mm-hmm. But well, 25 of our cast and crew, wow. it, was, it was more than half mm-hmm. of our entire cast and crew paid themselves to be able to go and be part of the group. And so we were taking up like two full rows um, in the Microsoft Theater and were, you know, loud cheering section. <laughs> um, but when we were waiting, they don't give you – a program. I mean, there's a booklet, but it's not in order of when the categories are going to be nominated, and it doesn't tell you who your presenter is going to be or anything of that nature. So you're just sitting there, like, no idea when you're coming up, no idea when to emotionally guard yourself. And so two presenters came out um, to present a series of awards, and they were RuPaul and Gloria Steinem. And we were all just sitting there. I grabbed Jen's hand next to me and was just like, is this about to be our category? Is Gloria Steinem and RuPaul, are they going to be the ones announcing? And of course, it didn't end up being the ones to announce it. But just that sort of every step of the way feeling just, is this the moment? And so many of the categories as well started with the word outstanding, and we didn't realize that going in. So it'd be every time, outstanding short form, documentary, you know, and so a lot of adrenaline yeah, in and out, yeah. You know, a lot of web series are written sort of vaguely autobiographically, like the, the star is also the writer is also the director, whatever. And that can be very insular sometimes. Um, and I think that her story avoids that. And I'm wondering uh, how you sort of went about the approach of saying we're going to find a way to talk about things that are very important to us, about things that are very interesting to us, you know, whether it's LGBTQ uh, issues or, or dating or things like that, and still like leave this window open that will let people in. I guess. I guess what I'm asking is like what's the – um, how did you keep it from becoming too, uh, too, too of the community, if that makes sense? I think that the benefit when you're able to achieve it is that it's not niche. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the universal as well. It's not – I mean so many of the stories that you do see in the mainstream about trans people, especially before her story came out, were – mainly focusing on transition itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the in in a cisgender in the equivalent time frame of a cisgender person's life, that would be like if all movies were about people going through puberty <laughs> and not about the fact that life continues after that and you have careers and relationships right. and chores and just like anyone else. And so I think you know, it's really only when people who are outside of the community try to write queer characters that it, it more tends toward the stereotypical or the niche feel because sure. it's it's some sort of assumption of otherness. It's 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 a little bit ignoring the fact that also we're all just living and experiencing the same things <laughs> that anyone else does. So I think it wasn't you know coming from a place of it being of there being themes that were autobiographical in the script for both Jen and myself. It was fairly easy to accomplish that just because that's what life is like and what our lives are like and and to explore that in the characters. Right. Uh, Laura, I want to ask a little bit about the the writing process of this show, which is 
obviously it deals with a lot of social issues, a lot of, you know, important things in the LGBTQ community that aren't necessarily addressed on, on you know, normal television. I'm putting air quotes around that. But it's also like a really sweet romance. You know, there's some workplace drama stuff in there. Tell me a little bit about sort of balancing all of those elements as you and Jen were sitting down to, to write this series. I think it wasn't necessarily, in terms of first steps, it wasn't necessarily a conscious effort of, you know, this is how much love story there's going to be. This is how much, um, you know, political commentary there's going to be or social political commentary. It was more we started with the seed of thinking about a potential relationship between a trans woman who mostly identifies as straight and a, a cisgender queer woman who mostly identifies as a lesbian and what that friendship and relationship would lead to and the complications within their social circles. And then from the beginning, the third lead character was always meant to be the character of Paige. And at the time, Jen and Angelica were roommates in Chicago. And so um, Angelica was always attached to the show to portray Paige as well. So we had these three lead characters and just kind of started with exploring those initial connections between Violet and Allie, Jen and my characters, and then Paige meeting a great guy for the first time and trying to figure out the how and the when of disclosing. And through kind of exploring those relationships, all of this content just kind of, you know, the richness of the content kind of came out of that because there was so much to tell that hadn't been told on mainstream media. So it just felt fairly natural. And the original script was even more densely packed in with content that in 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 nuance of conversation that got trimmed, which you know really Kate came in and and was very helpful as well as Sydney Freeland and our director Brian Darling in really helping us ultimately focus the the editing of the story to focus first and foremost on the story and the love story and to let the, any sort of politics or social commentary come out be earned, you know, and not be forced into it. And I think ultimately the final product succeeds in that way, or we hope it does. Hmm. How did you sort of looking at that? This is a very tough thing to do for any writer, uh, figuring out what to cut, figuring out what to keep, sort of what your real story is. And you mentioned sort of gravitating toward the love story, but how did you figure out what was what was going to be in there, what was going to be sort of your through line, I guess? Well, I mean— it was very helpful to have. Do you mean at the the very beginning in the writing? Yeah, process? as you as you were trimming it down from writing those longer scripts, I assume to the more dense scripts, as you said, to you know what is what was actually shot, basically. We shot most of what was in the original script. It, it's it's not so much that I mean there were a couple scenes that were cut completely, but it was mostly at least a little bit of every scene that we originally wrote made it into the final product that you see online. And actually, we ended up also doing reshoots, Mm -hmm. writing entirely new scenes after we had a rough cut and looked back and saw where the holes were story-wise and what we would like to see more of. We, We wrote new material as well. So if anything, the final product had a little bit more in terms of variety of scenes, just a little bit less in terms of dialogue. So I think at first in the initial writing, it was just Jen and I feeling very free to just explore the conversations and between the characters to the full potential. And then Sydney was very much drawn to the love story aspect as well. And when she came on board, said that it was something she didn't know she wanted until she read it. You know, something so simple as a love story for a community that has never been shown in that light in the in the in the mainstream media. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, that is one thing that really struck me. I, I, I found this um, – somebody recommended it to me a few months ago and I watched uh, I think the first three or four. And um, it really does like bring up storylines that I've literally never seen depicted anywhere. Right. What was something you were particularly excited to portray, uh, both of you, uh, that maybe you hadn't seen on screen before that you thought would make a great a great story? I mean, I think the love story absolutely is something that you don't necessarily see a a positive spin to both queer and trans love stories uh, without, you know, you know, just showing, you know, the people that we see in our communities um, living the lives that they're living. I think uh, I really was drawn to the fact that we're not, you know, just kind of painting all of the LGBTQ community as one, you know, happy, loving family that all has the same opinions and political beliefs and everything like that and showing kind of the complexities within the LGBTQ communities. We don't 
agree on everything. There are certain issues. I mean, even in Allie's friend group in the show, there's, you know, the character of Lisa who has, you know, prejudices and and, um, issues with trans women. You know, whereas, you know, a lot of people, I think, especially in in straight uh, and and cis worlds, you know, have this notion that, you know, everything under the rainbow flag is hunky-dory and we all kind of have the same beliefs. But there's nuance there and there's complexity and there's reasons behind some of those prejudices and and kind of beginning that conversation and exploring exploring that uh, was interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And also just to show, and it sounds so overly simple, but just to show these people being worthy of love and worthy of, of being in these dynamics, just, I mean, after the fact, the feedback we received was so much gratitude for the portrayal of something that feels so simple, but when there's such a dearth of representation of this type of, of showing this type of chemistry and, you know, and, and also showing the James character ultimately, you know, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but ultimately accepting Paige at the end, you know, we, we there's a lot more of their story, of their story that, that we have to tell um, if we're able to make more of the show, but, you know, just having her be ultimately embraced and having him sit with the complexity and recognizing that the, that we all have something that is hard to talk about ourselves when you're originally connecting with someone. And so that was, you know, the Paige James storyline I was very excited to show as well. And also that relationship between Paige and, and Vi as well, the relationship between two trans women and, and, you know, what that looks like, not only two trans women, but uh, you know, a white trans woman and a black trans woman and the kind of complexities behind that. And and that very much mirrors Jen and Angelica's relationship as well, I think. But I think this whole kind of idea of the story being, you know, first and foremost, the love story, it's, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what we were kind of editing and paring down and the way we kind of pushed more towards that, right. um, as opposed to the more political aspect, I think, is is all kind of, you know, it's all for the same purpose, which is to have kind of this universal feel to the story, regardless of whether or not they're trans or queer, for people just to actually be rooting for these people to get together in the end and not, you know, care about, you know, who they are or what their identity is or what their sexuality is or anything like that. Just be like, okay, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kiss. <laughs> just kiss already. My yeah. God. Um, uh, one thing that uh, you mentioned Lisa, Lisa's character here, and one thing I think the show does really well is – it has these characters with different points of view, and it's obvious when the series itself doesn't agree with a character's point of view. But you also don't – you don't make them the bad guy. You know, you don't make them the villain who comes in and twirls their mustache and says, you know, I'm going to tie someone to the train tracks. How do you sort of – as a writer and the, sort of as advice for other writers out there, how do you approach the question of – Writing somebody whose viewpoint you disagree with but giving them humanity, giving them sort of a full character? Right. And that, I mean, with Lisa, it was really tricky because when we were writing the character of Lisa, there was a little bit of not conflict by any means, but conversation between Jen and myself about, you know, because I was, of course, coming from the perspective of being inside the queer community and having, you know, being in in a friend group with many lesbians and queer women. And there wasn't a Lisa or an equivalent Lisa in my friend group, which, of course, granted, like any friend group is self-curated. And and I was also choosing not to, you know, associate with people who presented their ideas that I found offensive in the way that Lisa does. But so I think I was a little bit resistant at first. I felt like she was a little bit too mean. But then I had Jen and Angelica and, you know, many of their friends in the trans community who had had these experiences and had these things said to them and about them either online or to their faces. And so I had to ultimately trust and kind of give over to, okay, well, I hear you. I hear that you're saying you have experienced this. And so just because, you know, I don't want there to be a mean lesbian doesn't mean (laughs) it's less real. And so I think it was, you know, then kind of thinking about, why people, why there's the dis, the prejudice and discrimination internal to othered communities. And I think a lot of times it's just very much based on pain and based on, you know, Lisa is a character who her lesbian identity, she feels, has been very hard won. She's faced a lot of discrimination because of being a lesbian. She's experienced a lot of violence, you know, gender-based violence. And, and so 
she's coming from a point of view where it's hard for her to understand her reality, which has been so hard one, coexisting with a reality that seems to challenge some of the the, the basic tenets of of her identity. And so once I kind of I once I accepted that we were going to tell this particular story, it wasn't actually that hard to get inside of the emotional complexities. Because I think ultimately when people are being cruel in any manner to any person, it's usually based on a similar, you know, the the, the universal kind of thread of pain or ignorance or a combination of, of the two. And then after the show came out, all of the Lisa's that exist in the real world made themselves known to me <laughs> and were especially on Twitter. Yeah. And and I was glad that we had included that because it's it's still very much a real perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to ask about about influences. You know, what, what are some other shows, movies, books, even or or even other web series that you guys looked at and said, you know, this is this is what we want to do. Well, I was definitely into um, before we were writing it. Um, I really loved the web series High Maintenance. In terms of, you know, examples of, of like, excellence in web series, there were, of course, some queer web series that I um, watched. Like, there was one called The Slope that I really liked, um, High Maintenance. Um, and, you know, of course, I loved the first season of Transparent, which actually we had written her story before, right before the first season came out, but I, I found that to be a really incredible season of television. Um, and... Lately, well, I guess we can talk in general about what do you like now? <laughs> I'm trying to think of the influences for this particular. I mean, really, it felt more experientially based than mm-hmm. rather than trying to model after something. It was really based on Jen and my real life friendship and chemistry and trying to build from that more so than trying to create um, something like another show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually did want to ask about uh, like finding locations to shoot at um, can always be tricky, especially for an independent production. How did you sort of navigate the question of because you use some great Los Angeles sites that you know I know and love, and many of my friends know and love. Um, how did you sort of navigate that that the hurdle of finding places to shoot that would let you shoot there, or you know, doing it guerrilla style almost in and out. Uh, we got permits for everything. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, we shot a lot in our house, actually. Laura and I are roommates. Um, so we shot probably three days, three or four days in our house, um, which is, you know, the coffee shop was our backyard. The Vi's house is, yeah. Um, in terms of bedroom scenes. The bedroom scenes. Yeah. yeah every, everything. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the interiors were shot in our house. So that was kind of an easy, an easy one. Mm-hmm. Um Everything else was really difficult, trying to find those right locations that would, you know, work within our budget, that would give us the time and the space that we needed. You know, we worked with a, a, a place in, in right on Sunset in Echo Park that kind of doubled as a few different locations. I'm trying to remember where else. <laughs> but th- those are the main ones. And then, you know, like, you know, Silver Lake Coffee obviously was, yeah. you know, an exterior that we used. And they were very kind to let us do that. But really it was about kind of trying to make other locations work for, you know, what we were go- – the look that we were going for. Yeah. Um, but we never kind of – we never left Echo Park except for with the, the, shoot, the extra scenes that we shot months later – uh, we shot actually on a studio. Mm, okay. Well, and the um, Glad offices. Glad and yeah, Glad was amazing in that they the Paige's office was all shot at the Glad offices uh, on Wilshire, and they were incredible letting us uh, use that space. That was that was great. Terrific, terrific. Uh, so uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going to be wondering, you know, how can I mount my own web series? How can I make this happen? Uh, and I, I want to start sort of by asking a question about like like budget. Like, how do you find money? How do you wrangle that to be able to make sure you can you know sort of fit your vision, but also not you know need millions upon millions of dollars to do so? I mean, do you have some advice for that? Yeah, I mean, we were in a kind of a unique position in that we could buy it for various self funding, basically for the first for the for production, mm-hmm. uh, pre production and production. We needed to uh, go out to our community to cover post, however, and that was both to kind of raise the money for post production, but also to start the kind of hype and get the community involved and feel like they had ownership over the series, which I think 
you know, it started when we released our trailer back last summer, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't release the series until, you know, six months later. But having that start then, people kind of donating $1 or $5 or whatever, really, I think, is is one of the reasons why, you know, a year later we were nominated for an Emmy because it really did get the word out there. People did feel like they had some part of the series, and they took it upon themselves to get the word out about it, to watch it. And, you know, eventually to, to try to get it nominated. So, so you know, I think the biggest piece of advice in terms of, you know, finding finding money, I mean, it's always difficult. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to find money for, for production. We had it. But th- I think crowdfunding is a really useful tool that can have multiple, you know, benefits, not just the money, but also getting getting that kind of support, you know, that, that kind of ground floor support, like right there from the beginning. Right. But I think as well, if you, you know, the reason we were able to get the talent that we were involved is because of Jen and Laura's script. So I think ultimately if you have something that is people relate to and people kind of fall in love with and have you, if you have characters that, you know, you feel, you know, that could be your friends and, you know, you want to see these things come to life, you know, it starts with the script. And if you have that, you can usually find people that want to support that, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, when you're talking about, you know, marginalized groups or, you know, even just, you know, supporting female filmmakers. I mean, our our whole cast and crew, are we're like over 80 percent female right. filmmakers and also also LGBTQ professionals. Uh, and that was one of our goals going into it, which was to show that, you know, you can make extremely quality programming without compromising in terms of hiring women and hiring people within our, our the LGBTQ communities. Um, so that going into it as well is something that really supported us and helped us in getting the kind of support that we needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as you sort of are, are thinking about Kickstarter or, or crowdfunding, I guess I should say, because I don't know if you used Kickstarter. We used Indiegogo. You used Indiegogo. Indiegogo. What, what, are, like, what are some things you learned about crowdfunding that you feel like you, know, you now – can pass on to others or that if you did a, a season two, season three, whatever, and needed to go back there, like what are some things you learned from that first campaign that you think you can apply going forward? I think the the biggest thing is is how you curate your page, your crowdfund page, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of uh, information and the kind of um, media that you put on there. Because we were able to get through production without needing to crowdfund, we were able to put out, you know, behind the scenes footage the trailer, um, interviews with people. And that really helped us because it made people feel like they were, you know, a part of it on set. We were also lucky in that our, the extra scenes that we shot months later happened, you know, after we did the crowdfund. So that was something that we could offer, that, that kind of perk of being able to come to set or, you know, whatever. The perks were really important, um, having things that are kind of outside the box, things that people actually want, but also things that aren't necessarily going to cost you money, right. phone calls, texts, mm. tweets, or whatever. That's that's important because I feel like a lot of people do perks like T-shirts and mugs and stuff, and it's great. But the order fulfillment, the actual, you know, getting those products, getting them made, it, it usually costs you money in the end. So trying to find perks that are kind of outside outside the box kind of free things. Which people actually like, coffee with one of the cast, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what else would you think? Well, I mean, you said you said something similar to this, but I think the, the you know, in our case, the fact that we had the privilege of being able to shoot the entire thing first before the crowdfund, I mean, not only did it let people feel like they were part of being on set and whatnot, but it also psychologically it allowed people to feel like this was a train that was going to go no matter what. Like it wasn't about a a need. Right. And we invite you to be part of it if you wish to be. So, you know, I think there was something about being able and being lucky enough to have that orientation of instilling confidence in people that it it was going to be made and going to be made at a high quality. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool, cool. I also want to ask sort of about casting. I know obviously you and Jen and Angelica were all attached, but you had to find some other actors. and, And I've seen a lot of web series over the years, and the acting quality can be variable, let's say kindly. But here, you know, you found some very good actors. How did you approach the question of casting, or what were some tough roles? Uh, we worked with an amazing casting director named mm-hmm. Geraldine Flood. She basically donated her time to kind mm-hmm. of get us this cast together. And, and like you say, we had uh, Jen, Angelica, Laura, and also Fazia Mirza, who plays Cat uh, in it. They were already attached going into it. So we were looking for Lisa. We were looking for James. Mm-hmm. You know, we were looking for um, Mark. Mark. Yeah. Jenna. Jenna. 
And and that came down to Gerilyn. So Gerilyn, basically, you know, we spent three days, Sydney and I, in casting with Gerilyn, and we and we saw a lot of people. Christian Ochoa, who plays James, is actually the first person we read for James. Hmm. And it was just kind of all over after that. <laughs> like, was, he came in and we're just like, oh, okay, cool. We're, we're all gay in this room. Well, actually, Gerilyn's not. But Sydney and I were just like... That I'm, I'm sold. Yeah, we all <laughs> joke about it. Like, as a man, if you can get a room full of lesbians to swoon, we're like, and <laughs> we get the room. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was really just you know her just using her contacts and 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 you know finding the right fits for these for these roles, and and we were very lucky to have her. Yeah, great. great. And Lisa was a really tricky one, but to your point earlier about feeling like she's still very human and not just a one note villain. That was something that we went, had the intention during casting of to make sure we had the right person who could convey that in the performance as well, could make this a complex person and not just a villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was hard. And Carol, I mean, Caroline Whitney Smith, who plays Lisa, is amazing. And she's, you know, so not Lisa at all. But, you know, she was able to come into the audition and then, of course, on set. And just find a way to embody, I think, a character that is really difficult. And, and to your question earlier and also to the writing— you know, being able to write a character, being able to play a character whose ideas you very much don't agree with can be really difficult. So you do find those ways in. And she managed to kind of, I think, in a very nuanced way at times, you know, find those kind of triggers for her that didn't necessarily make her a villain. And I think also made you kind of want to know more about her, mm-hmm. which is something we would love to be able to do. Mm. It's also really beautiful to look at, um, which, again, a lot of web series are kind of flat and shot, you know, like a, like a vlog in some ways. How did you um, – what, what were your discussions when it came to, like, the visual palette of the series with, with, with Sydney? Uh, well, when Sydney came on board, the first thing that we did after that was get a DP. And, and um, Berenice Savino uh, is an incredible DP who was kind of the top of our wish list. We didn't think we'd be able to get her, but we did. And uh, once she came on, that kind of um, the color palette really came together, kind of figuring out what we were looking for, what we were trying to do, again, based off of where we were going to be and the kind of, you know, East LA kind of vibe. Um, We were looking at a lot of reds, a lot of pinks, warmer blue and purple colors, and kind of basing everything off of that palette. And that then, you know, translated to costume. Uh, Daria Derman, our costume designer, then kind of incorporated that kind of visual feel that, that Bear and Sydney had created uh, and brought it over to, to, to costume. And then, of course, it impacts makeup and everything else. But um, right. it really started with that color palette that, mm. that they created, yeah. Excellent, excellent. I want to pull back a little bit and look at, I guess, this is kind of one of my, you know, old old things I like to talk about that – Sometimes people's eyes glaze over when I bring it up. But I'm really fascinated by the idea of web series as sort of uh, independent television because television has one of the ways that, you know, if you get into the old film versus TV debate, which is stupid and pointless to argue about, one of the ways that television sort of lags behind film is it doesn't have an independent scene like film does. And web series is sort of filling that gap, but... You know, obviously there are issues with curation, there are issues with all of that sort of thing. So I'm wondering, as you've sort of moved into this community of, you know, independent television producers, for lack of a better word, what have you sort of been impressed by? What have you been – what's been interesting to you about entering this space that is right now sort of um, very Wild West in a lot of ways? Yeah, I mean, what new media and the kind of digital world has offered filmmakers is the chance to get their work – seen, um, done and seen on, you know, and end series and TV and TV kind of level. I think the the shame right now, and I've, I've said this before, you know, with regards to the Emmy, for example, our category was best uh, outstanding short form comedy or drama series, which really was for digital new media series, web series like ours that are on right. the Internet. So there's there's these two things going on. There's this on one hand, you know, we have more control now over our content and being able to make it. You know, we can crowdfund, we can create the content that we want without being beholden to studios and platforms and uh, networks and their rules. And we can get it out there and people can actually see it. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, the studios and the platforms and the networks who are seeing that this is a, a huge space for media and kind of taking it over <laughs> you know what I mean of the all of the all of the um, series nominated in our category we were the only independent mm-hmm. um, whereas that category was very much for independence you know it gave us the opportunity to get to that level right 
that, you know, studios and everybody have had access to TV forever. And like you say, independent television doesn't really exist outside of, you know, you know, maybe PBS. <laughs> so it's hard to kind of, I mean, it, it's difficult because there's money behind those, you know, those other shows and those kind of series that are coming out right now. There's not necessarily money behind, you know, web series like ours and other people that are making it independently. And yet we're still now trying to fight over that same kind of digital space. Mm. And I think right now we're not really winning. We're kind of losing. But I feel like there might be there might be a shift. And I think, you know, by virtue of her story being nominated and up against things like Fear the Walking Dead yeah. and Hack into Broad City, we were, I think, hopefully able to show that, that it is possible and that, you know, independent series creators and producers can enter the space on a higher platform, a higher level. Right, right. We talk a lot about diversity in television and how it's getting better in a lot of ways from where it was like 10 years ago. But do you feel like independent web series, whatever you want to call them, uh, like that is still sort of the best way to open up visual storytelling to perspectives that maybe aren't reflected very well on television? I mean, absolutely. I think the immediacy is there, as Kate was speaking to, about not having to play by any particular rules or be, you know, stifled or, or edited in a certain way by by networks and by what's going to be the most profitable or have the most mainstream appeal or anything like that. So, I mean, it does absolutely feel like that is a way to get those stories out there. And also another benefit of being in this world now of you know, sort of the independent series and television realm is that you become connected to so many other people doing similar work and who are typically also, if not in the LGBTQ community, just, you know, people of color, people, you know, our creative um, world of contacts has vastly expanded through this whole experience of this last year or so. And really, we're trying to build sort of like a like a Judd Apatow-esque, you know, <laughs> community where everyone hires each other and uses each other and and um, and projects. And hopefully, you know, we're all going to expand and grow our careers alongside one another and really elevating and supporting other people in the community and hiring one another when we have the opportunity to do so. So it's been also a great way to be introduced to the talent that is in our communities so that moving forward, regardless of the the scope of the projects we're working on, that we can continue to work together. This is always sort of the, the question. I'm a TV critic, so I ostensibly am supposed to watch everything. But, you know, I go to YouTube and look for a web series to watch, and it's always like this vast sea of things to sort of comb through. I'm wondering, like, certainly the good stuff I hear about. Like, I heard about her story. I heard about High Maintenance when it was, when it was happening as a web series. But how do you – do you think there are ways that curation – or pulling the good stuff to the top? Do you think there are ways that that could happen, I guess, a little more immediately, a little more readily? Or do you think it's just you have to wait for the good stuff to get sorted out? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I think that, I mean, I do think there are sites that are starting to try to, you know, curate and Mm -hmm. and pull out the things that they're finding that are, you know, high quality. Um, I think, you know, one of the kind of awesome things about, you know, digital media and, you know, having all of these options is that, you know, what you like, you can usually find. And not everyone's going to, you know, agree with you, you know, quality. I mean, I think, you know, there's certain things that make something quality and really incredible, especially when comparing it to television that's being, you know, on networks or to film. But at the same time, there's something for everybody and people can make, you know, you can make whatever you want and put it out there and someone can find, like, and be like, that's that's me, that speaks to me. (laughs) And it goes back to that that idea of, you know, representation and authenticity, you know, which is something that we tried to do with ours in terms of queer and, and trans representation and authenticity. But for someone else, it might be something else. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's there's things like, you know, places like Wifey who are curating things that, you know, content that is geared towards more towards like, you know, feminist content, women made, queer, which is great. And they're pulling together some things that are, you know, really incredible. And then there's, you know, Refinery29, of course, is doing things, you know, like the skinny but then there's other stuff I think it's worth searching for. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? People that don't have the budget to get it out there or that don't have it, you know, to get it in front of the right eyes to get curated or get put on, a, on a, another platform that is is really quality and, and I think beneficial to someone, you know, in the middle of the country that, you know, maybe doesn't see themselves represented but is on here. 
Right. And also I think we're moving into a space where new media is not necessarily uh, synonymous with indie and in that networks now are taking yeah. on you know, their like new media or web series kind of sections and trying to create content that lives in multiple spaces and digital spaces. And recently a friend said something to me about – Oh yeah, I know. Right now, Comedy Central is accepting Snapchat series. So if you have anything, <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I feel old. Like that. I mean, I, I recently got into Snapchat, but being able to to compose something that would work as a series on Snapchat. So, um, you know, it just, yeah, it's. I feel like there's there's, which is you know a good thing that they're now going to be more curated and funded opportunities to make this material. It's just the Daily Show, but the host has, like, the dog filter over their face. Right, exactly. <laughs> making jokes. Um, well, let me ask sort of, I guess, uh, the reverse of that, which is her story, the first six episodes is, you know, if you add it up, it's roughly one HBO episode of television. If somebody came and said, we want to do her story, the TV show, do you think it could live in that space? Do you think you could do, you know, 13 half-hour, hour-long episodes every year? Or is that, is that, is that like a goal or is that just like, would that just be a cool ancillary thing that would happen? That's absolutely a goal. We actually have already written a very detailed treatment for a 10-episode, hour-long-per-episode first season as well as a second season brief synopsis. And we have a beautiful pitch deck that we put together. So we've been, you know, pitching it to networks with that aim of of being able to make this our job for a little while. And just, yeah, in terms of the story, we— at this point, we've thought and written out so far into the future from what you've seen the characters experience so far that really the web series right now just scratches the surface. We have so much more for the core characters, but then we have, uh, you know, at least eight or nine other main characters that we would want to introduce in kind of this larger world. And so absolutely, we we have no shortage of material to to expand into if if it ends up going that way. <laughs> right. So many web series are about dating or romance or you know sort of a sort of a romantic comedy slash romantic drama. What is it about that that makes it good fodder for sort of this style of storytelling? Well, I think for the at least for the Allie and Violet storyline, we were very interested in exploring the specific phenomenon of what happens when the person that you meet and are drawn to and are have chemistry with in some way defies who you expected to be drawn to and then also in some way reflects something about your own identity. I think that's a really interesting complexity to dating when it's when it's not as simple as just, oh, I want to meet like someone who has all of these qualities about them, but it's, oh, there's something about this person that I have chemistry with and I'm drawn to that in some primary way challenges my ideas about myself. So we wanted to really implicate the audience in, you know, as Kate mentioned before, rooting for this couple to get together at the end so that the audience could be reflective about, oh, this doesn't matter. Like, this is clearly a good, positive connection, and it's the internal obstacles that each of these people are looking to overcome. So I think that romantic, you know, landscape allows you to go internal with your characters Mm -hmm. um, and take them out of their comfort zones in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Well, it gives everything stakes, too, I guess. Yeah, and vulnerability and, yeah. Mm. So you mentioned earlier that, that so many trans stories are about in, – in mainstream media are about, you know, transition. And that's not all of a trans person's life. What are some other things you sort of think mainstream media, even well-meaning, like wanting to do the right thing mainstream media gets wrong about LGBTQ stories? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not to put wow. you on the spot. But. Um, I mean I think – uh, I mean, it's, it goes back to kind of what, what Laura was saying, just that I feel like there's a lot of weight put on stereotypes, and mm-hmm. that is perpetuated, I think, over and over again, fairly obvious ways. I think for me, and I think for us, especially in making this, it, it, it is that authenticity that is, is lacking, I think, right now in a lot of content that's being made. It's starting to shift, and people are starting to become a little bit more aware, but in terms of casting, especially in terms of writing who's in the writer's rooms or who's writing these scripts— I, I think, you know, we're seeing it, you know, play out, you know, a lot right now, especially, you know, over 
Twitter and everything regarding specific movies and specific actors playing roles. I think once we can kind of get over that hurdle and make people, you know, see why this is an issue, not just for the sake of, of kind of what, what you know, people within our communities representing, you know, these characters can bring to the table on screen and behind the scenes. Once we get past that, I feel like the issues of cliche and stereotypes will just kind of fall away because then we can well people will have seen you know what is actually authentic and will highlight the fact that these things are cliches that we all know in the community but maybe someone you know in the middle of i don't even know ohio <laughs> maybe who hasn't seen it or isn't a part of the community that doesn't know is a cliche right unless people know to ask for it it feels like you know, we're, everything's just going to keep kind of cycling through. What's one of those cliches? Like, what's a big one that you are just like, Ugh, I can't believe this again? Um, I I mean, I th- there's there's a lot of kind of the, you know, butch femme dynamic, I think, that's played out a mm-hmm. lot. Like that being like the whole idea of like, you know, in a lesbian relationship, one being the man and one being the woman. Right. I feel like that is something that's consistent and we're, we're, you know, maybe starting to get away from a little bit. But it's that's a big one for me personally, I think. Um, I mean, uh, also this this year was sort of the start of the the barrier gaze movement or on Twitter. Right. I don't know if you heard much about that, yes. but basically mm-hmm. the the huge and I mean I, I don't have the stats right in front of me, but a huge percentage of specifically lesbian characters that have appeared in mainstream media over the years have been killed off, like it, something crazy, like. 70, yeah. at least 75% of them or something. And so even just being able to keep them alive yeah. feels like a first <laughs> right. step. I don't know what what that is in the writer's room. If it's like, oh, okay, we have this character, but don't know what to do with them now. <laughs> I guess they have to die. But um, the idea that, yeah, that, that people in the, in the queer community can't have happy endings. Like right. something has to go wrong. Like they get their heart broken or they get killed or something. Right. right. And then and then also specifically for trans characters that we've seen, one thing that we talked a lot about when we were writing her story is about the the trope we've seen again and again where the trans woman, especially in comedies over the years, is the butt of the joke. You'll see and it's the oh surprise, it's actually a man joke where mm-hmm. it's it's you see a a, a group of, of men and, and one of them's flirting with this attractive woman and then one of the guys whispers in the other man's ear and then then they're grossed out and then that woman you know walks off. It's the end of the scene. It's just this really cheap, disrespectful joke that is how over and over again we've seen trans women portrayed and so I mean that's a little bit how the title her story came out because it it was sort of like but what about that woman like what's her story like the the rest of these characters you know carry on in their respective roles and and films but that character was literally just a punchline and 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 to to give her to, to move her into center and what is her life like and, and what's it like to be on the receiving end of that sort of treatment. Mm-hmm. What's what's sort of the power in storytelling of moving someone who is the butt of the joke to the center of the stage? I mean, I think it's it it ultimately is is what storytelling is all about and why this is so why it's always as a writer so exciting to be able to approach a story and tell a story that you haven't seen told in mainstream media before because it feels like there's so much recycling of story that happens, you know, in our literary tradition even. And, and so many of the the great stories that are told now are in some way borrowed or, or, or recycled from, you know, our canon. And so it feels like when you can access a, a specific angle that feels new, it's, it's very exciting but also – again, just leads you to universal themes that are going to resonate for for anyone. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, there is something, you know, both Kate and Jen and myself and Angelica as well all came from social justice backgrounds before making her story. And so we all are highly comfortable and familiar with the fusion of art and activism. And I think to be able to make someone who is typically seen as strange or othered feel relatable and universal is the goal. And that, again, is just helping people realize that these are the people in, in their worlds who are already in their worlds. They're not over there. Everyone's, you know, existing together and sharing the same struggles. Mm. 
Mm. Well, I want to start pushing toward the end here, but uh, I, I did want to ask if there are any uh, web series or new media series that you guys are watching that or have watched recently that you feel are worth recommending to folks. Well, I think there's, I mean, there's a feature that some of our filmmaker friends just came out with called Suicide Kale, which was really great. It was an entirely improvised feature Mm. that I really enjoyed. I don't know that it's streaming anywhere right now, but they're doing the festival circuit. Mm -hmm. In terms of recent web series, I don't know that I've, The Skinny was was Mm -hmm. excellent. Have we been watching web series lately? (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. We're like speaking on behalf of web series. (laughs) Nobody ever has time to watch like exactly. what they're producing. We've been a yeah, little busy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well. Let me ask then. What's next? What do you hope is next for her story? I mean, if if you know you you mentioned you're trying to pitch it to networks, but do you want to do a, a season two of the web series if if it can happen? Or our main focus right now is to really develop it into a full series. Great. Um, we have. I mean, we just you know, like she said, we have so many stories to tell within this world. What we have so far is really just the tip of the iceberg, and we feel like we we could go the web series route, you know, moving forward. But I feel like in order to do this right and to kind of give the time and the space to the characters that we have, we need that time and we need that kind of platform. And also we want to get it out to more people. We want more people to feel seen. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And also, I mean, it it would be... I mean, this is the tricky part of indie. It's, you know, we poured a lot of resources and time and energy into creating this first season. And so especially after all the attention, um, this this what we've done so far is received, we wouldn't want to come out with something that at all had less of a production value <laughs> suddenly. Yeah. You know, we would want to at least match, if not exceed, the product that we were putting out into the world that has, the you know, the name of her story on it. So mm-hmm. we don't have you know, the same resources unless someone was to come on and, and want to help with that. So, Finally, you've both mentioned social media reactions in some way. I'm wondering if there have been any that have been particularly gratifying, just people who've reached out to you out of the blue and have said something that has really moved you or, or made you laugh or something like that. Well, I know it was a huge day when Carrie Washington tweeted that she was a huge fan <laughs> and a huge fan of Angelica Ross. That was that was a big day for all of us and for Angelica specifically yeah. because there's a there's a line in the show where Angelica, you know, talks about uh, Olivia Pope in Scandal. <laughs> but really it's just been the volume of of the the love that we've received especially from the community but also from outside of the community and you know some of the feedback from people who had never either experienced you know didn't have experience from within the community or just had never really you know like you had said considered or really thought about or or been shown these specific perspectives and that by the end really weren't thinking about sexual orientation or gender identity and were just wanting the people to get together or just caring about how the story itself resolved. And so I think that that's always gratifying to hear. Yeah, there's just yeah. been a lot of a lot of love, a lot of people feeling really seen for the first time and even like in our in our crew we had two people come out during production, like one as a trans woman and and one as a queer woman. So it's just I think the the project itself both internal to our cast and crew and then externally to the whole world has been really doing a lot of healing for people. And it actually really has been the whole world. Um, It's been seen, and that's one of the the advantages of being on YouTube as well. It's been seen by people in, in I think, over 123 countries and territories. It's been translated by by the community, by, by users, into almost 10 or 11 languages at this point. So we're, I mean, we're getting emails and we're getting tweets and everything like that from people all over the world who've seen it and who have, you know, been, have expressed their their gratitude for it. And that, again, I think that comes down to, you know, the authenticity behind it and the representation. Great, great. Well, you can uh, watch her story on YouTube. All six episodes will take you about an hour. Uh, you should. It's, it's really good stuff. Thank you so much for dropping in, uh, Laura Zach and Kate Fisher. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> Thank you. I Think You're Interesting is hosted by Todd Vanderwerf. You might have guessed that's me. If you hadn't, hey, good work. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Steve Tarabokia. It was recorded at the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. If you're ever out here, you just, just you know, if you're ever out here and you want to visit, don't just go to the beach. It's much nicer. Just, just head down there. You'll have a great time. 
We'll be back next week with another interview with somebody from the world of arts and entertainment. It could be at any level, just, just somebody I think is interesting and I hope you will think is interesting too. But until then, don't throw up. <laughs>